0: There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service Podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service Podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service Podcast. Today, I welcome Jacqueline Glasser. She is the managing partner of JKG Food Services, the president and CEO of World Select Cuts, the founder of the Mize Conference, and the VP of Client Services for the Summit Group. It's a very fun conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We talk all about entrepreneurship and marketing and food service. So if you have a pen and paper, get it ready. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Jacqueline, welcome to the Titans of Food Service Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on here today. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Glad we could make this happen. Of course.
0: So why don't we start off maybe a little background on yourself, how you got into the food industry, and, you know, kind of the steps along the way.
1: Sure. So that uh, that dates me back a couple of decades. Um I actually fell into the food industry. It's not anything that I ever expected to be involved in. In fact, I went to school and all of my kind of college internships, so to speak, were in media, television, broadcast. I thought I wanted to produce the Emmy Awards. That's That was my, my dream job. And I found myself moving to Atlanta to work for CNN. Uh, a night before I got to town, I got a phone call from... Uh, a person with knowledge of the program that I was about to join, letting me know that the program had been put on perpetual hold. um, And did I still want to come to Atlanta? And I said, well, I just had my goodbye party and my car is all packed up. So it would be really embarrassing if I stayed in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming. uh, And I relocated myself down south. Luckily had a free place to stay as long as I needed it and got a job at Bed Bath & Beyond facilitating shower curtain returns. Uh, About six weeks uh, feeling my brain cells die every single day. I thought I have got to figure something else out and jumped on monster.com, which is where you found a job back then and um, ended up with an entry-level position at a marketing agency. And the account that I was placed on was the Kellogg's account. So literally first first job, fell into it, um, placed me squarely with food, and I never left.
0: All right. Where did you go to to school? You mentioned you had a broadcast journalism degree.
1: Well, my degree is in communication. Um, I did a a specialty focus in broadcast journalism because the school didn't offer that specifically, but I attended Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Wow. And yeah, graduated in 2000 and then had a really fun stint as Bob Costas' assistant during the Olympics when they were in Sydney, Australia. So I did that for a little bit working for NBC. as part of that broadcast, and then moved to Atlanta that January. I don't
0: think Sydney. That was not his his uh, pink eye year, was it?
1: Um, that was the year that everybody thought his hair was red. The the lighting in the <laughs> okay. studio. Everybody thought he, he had dyed his hair red.
0: <laughs> what, what was it like working for him?
1: He was he was fabulous. Yeah. Um. You know, I just I really value working with people who are passionate and really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it it means that you can kind of come across a little bit. Aggressive or arrogant, I, I didn't find him to be any of those things. For me, it was he was really knowledgeable, dedicated. Um, it will always stick with me that the I think two months before the broadcast happened, he actually spent touring Australia, learning about the culture, going places, so he could be knowledgeable about it while he was talking on air in an organic way. He wasn't just reading. Uh, the, the script, so to speak, he was really involved in everything that he said on the broadcast, um, editing. Um, and I, it just it felt like he he really loved what he did and cared a lot about it. And I've taken that with me through my entire career. So it was fabulous. Yeah, he
0: seems like a great man. And I know he, he is their go-to guy, I mean, for all sports and, and Olympics. And I've enjoyed listening to him and watching him over the years, for sure.
1: He was a good first reference for a, for a job too, especially as I was getting into something that I knew nothing about. I think I, I only imagine. got the job because the guy wanted to call my reference.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did you? Did he impart any wisdom on you? I know you, you were mentioning that, you know, just kind of watching him work, you took away some things, but anything kind of directly that, you know, has really resonated with you and you still use today?
1: Um, I think it's just learning by us mostly. Yeah. Like I said, you just you just watch A leader in action, someone who is passionate and good at what they do and clearly in the right job for them. Um, And I think that in and of itself is inspiring. They think the cliche is, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I 100% 100% feel that way about the my career trajectory and where I am today. People say to me all the time, how do you do all of those things? And it's because it doesn't feel like I'm doing them. It just feels very natural, fun. It's it's what I love. And I think I probably took that from him. Also just the, the team dynamic, The everybody knew what their job was and was all against this, this big production uh, to get the job done. And everybody had fun. I mean, at the end of the day, we're at the Olympics. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a good point. That's a good point. My, my <laughs> Alma mater. I went to Chapman University, and the the film school, the Dodge Film School, there is a big deal, and it, it rivals uh, USC locally. And I think Columbia has a good film school as well. And I've got a good friend that went through the broadcast journal uh, journalism program, and she got to move out to Texas and worked at some of the stations there, and then moved back to LA and worked at a station here, and. It was always so cool to see her on air and, and she did the weather, you know, just different. I was a business major, but those those film yeah. those film students, I mean, they were dedicated to their craft and they, I, one of the people that graduated from my school went on, it was two brothers and they were the ones that produced uh, Stranger Things. So the, the school uh, has had some nice accolades over, over the years, but I've never met outside the of- What's that? <laughs> that? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I've never met somebody in broadcast journalism or had an interest in that outside of the people from my school. So that's really cool to know. When you got into marketing and you started working for, on the behalf of Kellogg's, what did that look like?
1: So my first job, I mean, it was trying to figure out what toy to put into the cereal box to align with the, the licensed property that mm-hmm. Kellogg's was associated with that particular quarter. Um, my account's, I worked um, in, in account-specific marketing, and so it was more on the retail side at that point. Kroger, I think, was the biggest one. I worked with some smaller uh, chains down in Texas, etc. But it showed me just a whole other way to be creative, and that was really what it was about for me when I hopped on Monster and I was looking for a job. It was about, well, how can I maximize these skills I have and what I really love about television broadcasting, but maybe mitigate some of the things I don't love, mm-hmm. like working long, not long hours, but weekend hours. You know, a lot of times you'll work on a big project for broadcast television and then breaking news happens and it doesn't even make the air. So that was always a little bit deflating. Um, so I, I, what I found at, and it was, the agency is called Summit and I'm actually still, I now run the team there today, uh, 22 years later, which doesn't happen <laughs> very yeah. often. It, I found this outlet for creativity and project management and uh, a little bit of event and just the skills that I loved within broadcast. And I didn't even know that I had never even heard of a marketing agency before. So I did that for about a year and a half, um, planning account-specific activations against property relationships like The Disney properties or NASCAR, et cetera. And then I was moved onto the NASCAR hospitality team. And so I did a year traveling the NASCAR circuit, which again, I mean, you're never, you're not working when you're doing things like this. I mean, it was just, things just kept being fantastic. I was very Britney Spears with my my headset and uh, my sign, and I would take grocery executives through the pits. Uh, Terry Labani was their driver at the time, and we would introduce folks to him. We did the whole suite uh, hospitality. That stint just taught me go, go, go. Um, You know, take advantage of every opportunity that you have. I was working Monday through Friday in the office and then at the track on the weekends and, you know, hobnobbing with top grocery store retailers. And it was, it was another fantastic experience. That then uh, led me onto the Kellogg's food service team. And so that was my first introduction to food service. Um, And there I never left. (laughs) So uh, from that, I worked on the Kellogg's account for another couple of years, and then my, my career just started taking off as I became from account coordinator to assistant account executive to account executive and kind of all the way up uh, through the agency ranks. Mm-hmm. So at this point in my career, I've touched uh, Kellogg's, uh, Sarah Lee, Barilla. Fredo Coffee, Bell Brands. I work with uh, hand in hand with Australian Beef and Lamb, which is the commodity board for uh, red meat from Australia, um, which has taken me into another whole career trajectory. So at this point in my career, I am I'm all in <laughs> on all things food service on the agency side, and my team is essentially an integrated marketing arm of companies whose food service departments aren't as robust, and they need that agency to kind of be there. I say. Arms and legs or extra hour in the day that you always wish that you have.
0: <laughs> right. I don't know if you've ever heard of the company, the marketing arm. Um, I don't think
1: it's, it, it, no. it,
0: it sounds somewhat similar. They're a marketing company and a good friend of mine works there. And what he does is pairs large brands like Procter and Gamble and all of their affiliate brands to athletes and influencers. So he gets to like, he goes to the, he just went to the NFL draft last week. And he gets to go to the Super Bowl activities and gets to meet all these really, uh, you know, well-known, big-time athletes and some of the influencers. It's I'm like, dude, you got the best job. It sounds so fun, right. and he loves it. So you were mentioning the something about Australian working in Australia. Tell me a little bit about that because I was reading through your bio, and I believe you started a company called Is it World Select Meats or Cuts?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll take a little bit of a step back. Um, So working for the agency since 2001, in 2016-ish, I was sensing a lot of my clients asking me for assistance, helping them access the lodging Mm -hmm. segment specifically, um, seeing that it has huge growth potential. We've got our GPO contract or we're never going to get a GPO contract. We don't want one, but how do you, how do we get through at the property level with hotels? Looking around at all of the options that were out there. And there were some at the time, there were some publications that uh, targeted hotels. There are some conferences. CIA still does a great one that targets the lodging segment, but more at the executive level. There was nothing that was singularly targeting hotel property level chefs mm. to help achieve sales success. Uh, so we shopped, my my colleagues and I tried to shop the concept around to other folks that were running conferences at the time. You should do this or you should start inviting hotel chefs to this conference. People want to reach them. And no one was really interested in doing it. At the time, one of the key publications was just shutting its doors. Another one was kind of get keeping keeping its feet on the ground. My conference friends were saying they had enough to do, they, did, they didn't need more. And it kept coming back to, you should do it. Right. <laughs> I thought, oh, good gracious, that's that's all I need. I had two two little kids at the time. You know, Do I really need this? But I'm not really one to like to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to figure it out. So when my clients kept asking about it and we couldn't find someone to do it, I got together with my two current business partners today and we said, you know what? we can do this. We know what we're doing. We're smart. Um, We're gutsy. And that was my first, albeit smaller, uh, entrepreneurial journey. So in 2016, we incorporated what is known as JTA conferences, which operates as the Mies Conference, Okay. uh, myself and two partners. And we started the industry's first uh, conference uniquely for hotel property level chefs. Um, and that is still running today. We took a two year hiatus during the pandemic. It wasn't really a time to be running conferences. We went online and uh, did some virtual encounters just to keep people uh, feeling as if they were part of the Muse family. And then we were back at it in person last August, and we'll be back in Atlanta again this coming August. So I think that, that, just to get back to your initial question, gave me this taste for being in business for myself, being entrepreneurial. Taking a jump, saying yes to things, and trying things that are uniquely outside of the comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So, then a couple of years later, when uh, another colleague who I was working with on the Australian beef and lamb business came to me and said that they thought there could be opportunity to help make lamb more accessible and approachable Mm -hmm. for the US population by turning it into a sandwich deli meat, which had never been done before, I thought wow, <laughs> you're you're right. And yes, we can do this. We can do this together. He was a bit of the big idea guy. I'm much more of a nuts and bolts, let's get it done. And so with the the idea and a couple of other key folks in the industry that we're associated with um, by our side, we incorporated in December of 2019, uh, also not the time to start a company yeah, start. <laughs> right before a little pandemic, but we incorporated in in December of 2019, World Select Cuts, which operates as the brand Aussie Select, and we are uh, bringing to market uh, the country's first uh, lamb charcuterie items. We have two lamb hams and a lamb pastrami. So again, my career sort of takes you know took me in this trajectory because. I'm working with the Australian lamb industry through the agency. I became really um, interested and intrigued by the production systems and the farmers and and the charter to drive preference and, and awareness of Australian lamb. Threw on that entrepreneurial hat and and spun it into its own company. So today, I run the agency full time. I have the the conference, Mees, and then I am also the CEO and founder of Aussie Select.
0: <laughs> okay, all right, I love that. <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, I know you started in in the end of uh, 2019, which is, as you mentioned, is a, it's a tough time to start, especially in the food business. But where is your where is World Select Cuts today? Are you in retail, food service? What has that journey been like?
1: Uh, the journey has been that image of entrepreneurism. Uh, entrepreneur. Yep. What's, what's the word? The, whatever that you'll see on LinkedIn all the time—that roller coaster where this is a great idea. I'm fantastic. What am I doing? This is the worst idea I've ever had. It's it, it sort of like live in that down part of the roller coaster right now, but um, uh, unbridled optimism that it, it's you know it turns around and we we um, celebrate literally every win that we get because it lifts our spirits and it makes us remember why it is that we're doing this. So when the pandemic hit. We basically turned ourselves inwards and worked on R&D, the flavor profiles, securing the right co-packing partners, getting the product perfected. Uh, we worked with the research for firm Product Evaluations mm-hmm. to get the product concept validated by both consumers and chefs. We did taste panels. You could do all of that during the pandemic while distributors and grocers were just trying to get their hands on any product that they could um, and weren't really looking to innovate (laughs) within lamb specifically at all. Yeah. Yeah. What it ended up meaning was post-pandemic, as you look at the data, charcuterie, you have to live in a hole to not realize how much that has exploded post-pandemic, and lamb too. Consumers went to the grocery store and couldn't find beef, chicken, pork, Mm -hmm. and rediscovered or discovered lamb for the first time. And lamb as a protein is now year on year growing faster than the other proteins that I mentioned. So we're almost at this perfect point where lamb is trending and interesting charcuterie is trending and interesting. The fact that we're uniquely sourcing everything from Australia, which is sustainable, all natural, pasture raised, we're we're pulling all of these triggers that people are interested in. I think we're, we are at the point uh, where now it's just about driving awareness about the product, getting to the exact right price point where we need to be at, tweaking the packaging and, and moving into stores. So stores and, and restaurants. Uh, We are in HEB. Um, I believe we'll be in specs in Texas uh, very soon. I just did a whole round of ECRM speed dating (laughs) over the course of the last week with uh, grocery retailers, including Target and Giant and Safeway, et cetera. So driving... Interest and, and uptake. Some of these things are a little bit of a, a slow burn. I'm sure you know that well mm-hmm. um, as well. You know, it's not their reset cycle or they're not looking at charcuterie right now or whatever the excuse might be. Um, sometimes you just have to hit the person at the right moment. But I, I think that uh, all signs point to positive that uh, we will be coast to coast. We are in e commerce. Um, so any consumer can find us um, through several different e commerce sites right now. And that is a four ounce pre slice product. Taking one step back, we also offer the products as whole roast um, items to be sliced. And that is our food service item. That was the one that came out first. Uh, Unfortunately, food service being slower to uptake, distributors being much more difficult to work with, especially at this time of of the industry. They got stuck with so much product post-pandemic. I think a lot of them are reticent to bring on untested new categories right now. And we had this great food service item and just have had difficulty pulling it through. Conversely, the retailers all wanted it, but we didn't have the four-ounce pre-sliced, which is now, it has just become available in March. So I think finally the stars are aligning. I'm in the process of hiring um, some sales folks to help us with food service. Just trying to find that magic that magic potion? Is it a, is it brokers? Is it full-time salespeople? Is it working w- with key distributors? Are they broadliners? Are they specialty distributors? And, you know, I know marketing and I've spent the bulk of my career helping products effectively market in food service. But when it comes to the sales side, it, it is all new. So I've definitely not done everything right. <laughs> I've learned a lot as, as the process has gone forward but I know with confidence that we have the right product at the right time. So it's just a matter of kind of connecting those dots. The pastrami, won the Spirit of Innovation Award. It won the Progressive Grocer Editor's Pick. Um, the product line was identified as one of 11 products, at fancy food show this year as a product to watch. There were 1,500 companies exhibiting. Food and Beverage Magazine just named it as a product to watch. We have fantastic chef testimonials. Everyone that tries it loves it. It actually over delivers on the palate. Um, so you can see I'm I'm excited and optimistic. Nice. It's just you know, getting people to write you back.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. I, my dad and I, we started our uh, food service brokerage company back in 2015, and I was six days out of business school, getting my undergrad. And my whole time in school, you know, I was doing case studies on big companies and how they operate, but no one told me the difficulties of entrepreneurship. I think there's a a view of entrepreneurs. You know, you see the the the, the entrepreneur on top of the mountain, and they they've accomplished so much success. But there's so much turmoil and ups and downs in their journey. And I remember the first few years, it was very difficult. We would uh, lose good brands that we represented, and our you know we were just inconsistent in our service offering. But it really was the pandemic where, you know, we. We were up against the ropes, just as every other food company was at the time, where I felt like I finally started to become an entrepreneur and started to learn how to grow my business and scale my business. But the the initial part of starting that business was very difficult because it's my dad and I, we did everything from marketing to advertising to sales to finance to bookkeeping. I mean, we, we did everything. But as time goes on, we started to get the financial resources to what I like to call buy back our time, find people that are better at sales than we are, find people that in accounting that are way better than we are marketing better than we are. And our business started to grow for the brands that we represent, you know, trying in a market, in any specific market, let's take Southern California where uh, where I'm based going from, for a brand to go from zero to the first 1 million in sales, it's difficult to do that. And the distribution channels and working with operators and having relationships kind of be alluded to, do you start with a broker? Or do you start with a distributor with your marketing background? I'm curious though, because I'm always, I, I love marketing. It's something that I feel like I, I'm decent at, but it's something that I'm passionate, passionate for. What would be, be, this would be more of an advice question. What would be some advice you would give to brands out there on, let's just say food service marketing?
1: New brands, existing brands, brands that are in successful in retail and looking to move into food service. It's I think different strokes for different folks, yep. and I think that that's what makes that what that's what makes it so dynamic. Uh, there is no one answer. There is no one size fits all. Um, I pride myself, my my team prides ourselves on really listening to who is the brand. Where are they looking to be? What, what is their unique value proposition? and what is the right path in? You know for a company like Barilla, who I've been working with for 15 years, when we first started working with them, they all they had was they, they had sales. They had uh, a distribution network. They had invested in a direct sales team and a broker network, but they had never done marketing to drive awareness mm-hmm. that that great blue box I can get inside the grocery store is now available in food service. And so for, for a company like that, the marketing proposition, well, first of all, they have a lot of different dollars to work with than yes. a startup, right? But it, but it also looks different than a company like Aussie Select, which doesn't have a brand, doesn't even have a category that people can associate with. Our trajectory into food services is, is completely different. So I think the best advice is, is to do a bit of analysis and to work mm-hmm. with someone that you trust to ask hard questions about why are you doing this? Does it make sense to be doing it? Who are your competitors? What are what are they doing? And who is the best target for you? And how do you reach that target? Um, in the case of Barilla, they were successfully working with very significant chain restaurants, and they were looking to start to expand their network. And there's no shortage of places to market in food service. There's so many fantastic dynamic segments that you can go after. And all of them are relevant for for pasta. But for the first two or three years, it was all about K through 12 and college and university. It wasn't to say healthcare wasn't important or lodging wasn't important or we didn't care anymore about the street accounts and and restaurants and fine dining. It was just, we are gonna funnel all of our energy into these two segments and we're Mm -hmm. gonna do it as best as we can and then in year 3 we can expand and in year 5 we can expand again and oh look now there's a new product line you know coming in we we almost have to do it all over again and and target that product line to those segments and it's just starting slow walking before you run being focused, knowing what your unique value proposition is, and and selling it to the individual person. Um, so much in food service, I think that's done wrong. Is people try to sell their whole product line to everyone with the same message? Because yeah. um, you can do that in retail. You you can't do that in food service. How you sell to a K through twelve food service director is really different than what's going to resonate with you know a hotel chef. And so working with folks again that you trust or that are knowledgeable about food service that can help you craft the right message at the right time, um, for your right product. And it might not be your whole portfolio. Um, I think that that's the the best advice that I can.
0: I can, I totally see what you mean. You know, there's a different strategy for someone who's more established like a gorilla in food service versus your tech startup out of Silicon Valley, you know, might have a different viewpoint for the brands that have established business and food service, what are maybe some tactics that they can use on the marketing side? A lot of times I get, a, I get calls from my manufacturer clients and they ask, you know, what do other manufacturers do on their marketing side? Because I think on, on food service, the robustness of marketing is not as much as it is on their retail side. A lot of times the marketing might be around point of sale or having table tents or pop-up banners for food shows, food show specific marketing things. Or maybe some marketing tactics for established food service brands.
1: So, food service is a relationship business. Yeah. So, I am I am all about putting your brand into the hands of people who can then influence others um, to love your products. Mm-hmm. So, tactics that I love are custom events, curated events just for the brand. Sometimes you can't do that right right away. Sometimes you have to go to somebody else's party before you can get somebody to come to your party. Um, but with a long term goal of of holding these, you know, custom curated events. Any opportunity that you can have to put your product into somebody's mouth, watch their reaction and answer questions about about it live, which is what was so difficult about the pandemic and food service, right? Because so much of that, that died away. But I do love events. I am also an early adopter uh, by nature. I like to go into the uncrowded spaces. I like to work with people uh, to understand what is nobody else doing and why are they not doing it and how can we make it work for for this particular brand? Um, How do you catch somebody when they're not expecting to be caught? And how can you do so with a message that's going to resonate and catch them in this aha moment? I think there always needs to be this underpinning of of brand awareness and brand availability, and especially now more than ever, supply chain availability. You can yeah. you can get my product. Um, I'm not going to just make you excited about it, but yes, you can you can call your distributor and you can put your hands on it. Less difficult for a known brand than for a new brand, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, today, it, it, for me, it's it's all about events, custom curated experiences, putting product into people's mouths, less trade show, um, more conference and, and experience. And I'm also playing a lot with digital.
0: Expand
1: on that, digital. <laughs> can you get me to give away all my secrets? Um, <laughs> you, can, you can do so much more with your dollars um, in digital than you can anywhere else. Um, It's incredibly efficient and efficient not just in the cost of the spend, but in terms of the effectiveness of the cost of the spend. With the data that is available out there now, you can test and push out messages to all sorts of different people um, and key decision makers in a way that you never could before. We are working with a partner who can... Actually, target B2B decision makers down to where they work. Uh, and you can push out creative to them based on their place of employment and their title and, and decision making authority. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's fantastic. I mean, it's not just about a particular city anymore. I mean, you're you're talking about the, the perimeter of a particular building. You can use data to say, this person who has a purchasing title has entered this establishment four times for more than five hours a day over the course of a work week. I bet they work there. And therefore, they're the person that I need to target with this message that this product is available. And because I know where they work... And what they do, I can actually get them this particular message and try to generate a, a sales lead out of it. And I just, I just think that's great. And it's nothing that we could ever do before.
0: You're, you're speaking my language for sure. I, I love the, the, your innovativeness in our business in the food service brokerage business. It's really been in a lack of words, kind of like a door-to-door sales go-to-market strategy. You know, there's the term dragging the bag, which is very common in what we do and going restaurant to restaurant or chain to chain or casino to casino, but there's so much opportunity online, and I think it for your dollars you're mentioning does go a lot further. And I've definitely played with the idea of giving operator data to my manufacturer clients and then building cold email funnels to those with with content curated specifically to those. Types of operators, whether it's uh, pizza restaurants or uh, Irish pubs or things like that. And I think it's definitely in the future. And I think there's a lot of disruption that can come to the food service industry. Everybody's has always been saying, you know, Amazon's going to come into food service. But I think there's a much bigger play forming on the digital side. And you can even create ads now on LinkedIn and Facebook to go directly to your target consumer and determine, you know, what the cost per click is for them. Is it something that they'd be interested in? Uh, so it's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I'm running an Aussie Select LinkedIn uh, acquisition campaign right now, and it's, you know, typically I think four to five dollars um, per. Per click, or that you're getting, and we're hitting seventy five cents, sixty cents. It's it's just amazing, and it just revalidates people are interested in this in this product. They're interested in learning more. You can then use that data to sell back to the the grocery retailer to the food service operator because it's it's meaningful. And I don't think that dragging the bag will ever go away. No. But isn't it so much more? Valuable to drag a bag that people recognize or have heard of, or can say, "Oh my gosh, I just saw your ad last night while I was sitting on the couch watching Netflix." Than to show up with a bag and somebody say, "I've never heard of you." So you mm-hmm. know, it's it's so critical to be integrated. You, you've got to be driving awareness while you also have product availability, while you're also working the relationship and you and really you need to be doing all of those things simultaneously in order to find success it's it's not enough to just do one i mentioned events i'm i'm super passionate about events we we are very very good at them and i have a a really pride worthy network of folks um within the industry that i think now believe in our the events that we do and and trust them and and do show up which makes them of course even more valuable we host an event at NRA, which will be in a couple of weeks um, here in Chicago. And it's a brunch, uh, Sunday morning, 9.30 to 11.30. And it's always a success. And we have 10 sponsors who come in at a very low cost um, to be able to be in the room and serve their food to the operator attendees um, who will be there. But Again, it wasn't enough just to have an event at NRA, right? Anybody can have an event. In fact, many, many do. When we decided we wanted to go into that space and create an event, we needed to take a giant step back and realize where did we make sense to be? I don't like to be another one. I, I, like I said, I like to be an early adopter. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things happening on Saturday nights, lots of things happening on Sunday nights. People do dinners, they do big concerts. Our event was never going to be a $250,000 experience at the House of Blues. Um, and I didn't really want that. Yeah. Uh, but there was all this white space in the morning before the show opens, when people need to eat something to line their stomach before they walk the show, when they're sober, um, when they're maybe even more receptive to having conversations where the music isn't blaring and no one was doing it. So Sunday morning, uh, we have an amazing space, lots of windows. People just come for food, pop in, pop out, stay for 15 minutes, stay for the whole two hours. Um, And I I think that all 10 of the sponsors that do that brunch with us none of them have a booth at the show. Wow. They use it as their as their main way of connecting with folks who are in town for NRA. So, you know, I said events are important and they are. Um, I think they need to be the right event at the right time and they need to be purpose driven. And um, it's, it's not just enough to, you know, throw up a flag and say, come to my party.
0: Yeah, you have to deliver uh, exceptional value. If you want to disrupt, you know, it, it, and get someone to stop, especially at the NRA, as you mentioned, there's other events happening, especially in the evening time. Uh, if you want to get someone to stop and come in, you have to be uniquely div- different and deliver a lot of value so that come back next time too. For those listening, how, do, how would they find this event online to sign up? Or is it just to show up? How does it work?
1: Yeah, so it's invite only. Um, so okay. you have to know you have to be invited by one of the sp- by one of the sponsors. All of my sponsors are allowed to submit as many invitees as they want to, and then it's uh, first come first served in terms of the amounts of space that we have. Um, for the brunch. So at this point we are, we are sold out, which is again, a nice feather in the cap to, to be sold out on such a busy weekend, you know, two weeks before the conference happens, just with a great representation of colleges and independent restaurants and chains and, you know, non-com national accounts, et cetera, uh, all will, will come through the doors, um, uh, of the brunch. So it's it's fun. I'll, I'll fly in and and host the brunch and then get the heck out of there because that city is crazy it, <laughs> during NRA week. It really is.
0: I don't know if it's the biggest event. I'm sure there's other industries that have events that are just as big. But, uh, you know, the cost of a hotel is through the roof for a night. And um, it's a really, yes. it's a great event. And I know it's our industry's biggest, or if not one of the biggest events that's put on.
1: The other thing on relationship building that I'll elaborate on that kind of takes you a little bit away from events is I always encourage my brands and and boards that I work with to leverage their customers to sell for them. Um, And so several of my clients have their own um, ambassador teams, chef influencer panels, whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, a group of people who believe in your products, who use your products, who you can use for testimonials. Sometimes they can be run in advertising. They do recipe development for you. They can influence packaging design, R and D progress. You have to treat these folks well, and you know for it to feel organic, they they need to be true believers. So it, again, don't just hang the flag and say you you six are going to be my ambassadors. It, it, you know it has to be meaningful um, as does anything really mm-hmm. that you do <laughs> in marketing for it to be believable. But if you have a brand, a trusted brand, um, like you were asking about before, that has a great set of customers, use those customers um, to your advantage. So many of them like the podium. they they like the opportunity to do something a little bit different. Oftentimes they are very proud of of their association um, with you. We have some chefs for some clients that every time that they travel, uh, they post on Facebook with their swag. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I don't know if I I, I can name drop her because she's so fantastic. but uh, Tamara Scroggins, she was with she was with Sizzler. She's no longer with them yeah. anymore. I'm now gonna sh- kill me. Where the heck is the name of her? She works. Oh, Hart How- Uh, Hart She works for Kevin Hart. Yes, um, House. QSR concept. And she was a Barilla brand ambassador um, for years. And we gave her a backpack. And whenever she travels, she posts on Facebook hashtag Barilla Bag Travels. I mean. That is marketing. Yeah. You can't, you can't pay for that. I shouldn't tell. I Tamara, thank you. I, I don't have a check in the mail for you right now. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of endorsement and friendship and relationship. I mean, it's, we would do anything for her. She would do anything for us. And if you've got customers like that, use them um, because that is what relationship marketing is all about. Yeah, totally.
0: I think back in the day, you know, Gatorade would pay millions to Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm to do a commercial. And now brands of all different sizes can afford, you know, m- like a micro influencer or someone who's well connected, like Tamara Scroggins, with her demographic or with her people that follow her on whatever social media channel she's on. So it's really cool and it, it allows brands too, to be disruptive, to come in and be different and think differently. I really enjoy that landscape it makes it a lot of fun
1: it does and at the end of the day we're all people mm-hmm. we all like to be recognized we all like to be a part of something and you know what what i love most about this industry is we're in the hospitality business mm-hmm. you know that we're good people we're fun we're friends. We enjoy seeing each other. I don't show up to a conference and see other agency folks there and say, oh, it's, it's my competition. They they're they get the same hugs that everybody else gets. I mean, I, I think it's just, it's such a, a good industry to to work in. And everybody moves around. And somebody that may not be relevant to you today could be relevant to you tomorrow. So be nice to everybody.
0: <laughs> it's an industry that, you don't pick this industry, it picks you. And it's, it's impossible. I want to uh, use the word impossible to get out of it too once you're in it you're in it and so it, it, my dad has always uh, taught me don't burn a bridge especially in this industry because you never know that person might go to a company that you're you're going to want to work with in the future uh, it's very 100%. it's very tight knit for sure
1: and when people come over i come over to food service from retail or you know a different part of their career i always tell them it's going to be the best thing that they've ever done they're, they're going to wish that that the past didn't exist and they were only with us in food in this crazy food service world always. Um, And similarly, when people decide they need to stretch and and leave food service and try something else, I give them a really hard time. (laughs) I know.
0: Right. And a lot of times they want to come back. (laughs)
1: Always.
0: (laughs) What are some of the changes that you'd love to see in the food service industry in the future?
1: Oh goodness. What hat do I want to wear to answer this question? What changes do I want to see? I think, my biggest frustration, honestly, and this is it's it's personal, but it's probably uh, transcends me to to many. Is I think our current distribution environment is really really difficult. Okay, it does not beget entrepreneurship. It doesn't beget innovation differentiation it's just it's not built for that um, and that's by no fault of their own that you know that's a, that's efficiency and their own business that they have to run but trying trying to navigate distribution is really really hard and oftentimes you know chefs will get really excited about a product and they just they can't get their hands on it mm-hmm. uh, and that's a that's a real shame and i think that's to your point earlier about amazon and, and whoever it's going to be and, and e-commerce is Booming, mm-hmm. um, even with existing distributors right now. But whoever can figure out how to connect chefs with really niche products, I, I think is is going to have a, a winner on their hands because there's a need for it. There's an interest in it. It's just it's hard. When somebody, if the chef wanted to order my product today in food service, I could say to them, it's available nationwide. Yeah. Um, we are broadline distributed through U.S. Foods. However, it's a dropship item. So that order comes in through me and it comes out of, my warehouse overnight shipping because it's a refrigerated, frozen item. It's really costly for a chef and it can prohibit you know, some from using the product or finding success with mm-hmm. it. But it also, I understand, US Foods can't stock my product in every single warehouse that they have. That doesn't make sense for their business model. So what's what's the happy medium? Why, how can we stop lining the pockets? Sorry, UPS and FedEx. How can we stop lining the, the, the pockets of UPS and FedEx and figure something out for the common good of of the industry? and of interesting menus and differentiation from account to account.
0: I totally agree. And I've met some really cool entre- entrepreneurs recently who are viewing the food service industry differently. And not, not so much on the distribution side, but you know what they're providing for manufacturers and, and brokers. There's a lot of innovation coming and I'm excited to see what the future holds. It, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 30 today. I hope I can do this for, you know, we'll see if I can make it 50 years, but it, it'll be fascinating to see how this industry changes, you know, cause it won't, what it'll be long in the future. won't be what it is today. Uh, it's going to change and adapt very much.
1: Yeah. I agree with, I agree with you. Um, I think a lot of things stayed the same for a long time. And if the pandemic did something good, it it lit a fire that you can't just rest <laughs> on our mm-hmm. laurels that this industry stays the same always. So I think there's been so much more innovation this last, you know, three years than there was in the three years before that or even the, the 10 years before that. So um, I will not profess to be an expert in distribution, in supply chain. I mean, that is this all new stuff to me. And that's why I said it's a bit of a personal answer. But, you know, my my difficulty right now is just is navigating distribution, mm-hmm. is, is figuring out who, um, who wants to work with me, and how to get the product into into people's
0: hands. Yeah, if you were watch the show Shark Tank, a lot of times the sharks will ask the uh, entrepreneur or the business owner, are you in distribution, you know, for certain industries? And when they're not, it's it's hard because that is it's probably the in food service specific especially it's the hardest thing to do is to get into distribution. Once you get in and start to build traction with the operators that they service, your business can grow, but that initial just getting it stocked in there and having the the pull through or or having them be able to buy enough to buy direct and and do all of that it's challenging and I'm excited to see where your journey goes I was doing a little bit of research online um about Aussie cuts and I think you I I love the the brand story I watched a little video that you had and I know you're going to have great success into the future what are some of the things that you haven't yet accomplished but want to in the future? Oh,
1: goodness. Well, I mean, anybody that knows me that's listening to this will start to laugh because my goal is a yacht. A yacht? Okay. <laughs> a yacht. My, my, that, is my, that is my vision board. Uh, I do what I do because I am going to sail off um, on my yacht. And so I tell anyone that wants to help me along my entrepreneurial journey that they get First cabin on the yacht. <laughs> if they uh, if they help help me out, but that's that's the the uh, the fun answer. Um, you know why am I doing this? Obviously, we all we all do it because it's a career. We all do it because we want to be successful. For me, what I what have I not accomplished that I want to? I just feel really fortunate, Nick. I, I don't I, I don't have an answer to that because I couldn't have told you three years ago that I would be launching a national brand, potentially a global brand today. I'm so fortunate. I would never have expected to sit on a podcast where I'm being called a titan in food service. Like, so many things come just because I I say yes, I'm optimistic, I'm friendly, I'm open, um, and you know, I I make myself available to things as they come. So I almost don't know what I don't know (laughs) right now. Um, I'm enjoying so much of what I'm doing. I feel like I do get to do a lot of what I like to do. I get to travel the places that I like to go. I like to hang out with the people that I like to be with. I've been so fortunate to be able to start industry-leading activities like the brunch, um, I, I started the Kitchen Collaborative Initiative, which took off during the pandemic and is, is now something that people throughout the industry know about. I have s- relationships uh, with close people that I—I mean—I feel so fortunate to have. I—I don't—I don't know. I mean, that sounds like such a fluffy answer, but I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah,
0: my my wife, she owns her own marriage and family uh, therapy practice. And she's been doing it now for a few years. She went, she got her master's degree and started at a different private practice and built up a book of business, started with nothing. And now she has uh, a great clientele and it's consistent business. And, you know, she's got some very loyal followers. And she's always like, "I, I don't know. You know, sometimes it doesn't know what I don't know, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, you are an incredible entrepreneur. You 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 have your target demographic very well defined, your marketing efforts are great, you get repeat business, you have raving fans as customers. So whatever you're doing, just keep doing that. And I I think just listening to you and reading a little about your story, you know, you're pushing the the status quo. And I think that's what will definitely make you successful and has made you successful. Um, and I, and I'm excited to see where you go from here and maybe we can connect at the NRA, but I just wanted to say thank you for joining me here on the podcast. I always get take away so much from doing these episodes. And when I first started in food service, my dad said, you know, there's no books on that you can read on how to be successful in, in food service. So that was one of the reasons, the catalyst why I started this podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you for coming on, telling your story, being vulnerable, being open. And it's truly appreciated.
1: Oh, yeah. No, thank you so much. It was absolutely humbling for you to reach out and ask me to be a part of it, especially when I look at the list of other folks within the industry who I adore and idolize that you've spoken to, to to be in their ranks. Um, I'm a little bit like your wife. I, I suffer from uh, a, a bit of imposter syndrome myself, and and sometimes it's like at one point somebody's going to wake up and realize that she does not belong doing <laughs> what, <laughs> this, what she's
0: doing.
1: I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep having fun. Good, <laughs> good.
0: Thank you so much, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank
0: you.